Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the podcast. This podcast is going to not be an interview this week. This week, it's going to be a replay of a lecture by Miss Pamela Howard uh, from the Oystet 50 event at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. Miss Howard is a director and sonographer working primarily in opera and contemporary music theater. Her practice encompasses large and small-scale productions in major opera houses and unloved and forgotten spaces. Trained at the Slade School of Fine Art, she has had a full career as a theater designer, developing a love of text and context with fine art. Since 2000, she has been the total creator of productions developing a scenographic language of beauty and simplicity on stage, where the performer is always the carrier of the myth. Sustainability and imaginative use of space are central to her practice. A compulsive observer of human life, she is never without a pencil and a sketchbook, notating the everyday, methodically storing her pencil sketches and reworking them on stage. She is the author of What is Scenography, translated into six languages, and now a new third expanded edition is in preparation for 2019. Pamela was awarded the OBE in 2008 for services to drama and is international chair in drama at Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama visiting professor at Arts University, Burnmouth, and emeritus professor at Arts University, London. She is regularly invited to educational events all over the world and has had great joy meeting and working with young people at the start of this long journey of creation. To learn more about Miss Pamela Howard, you can visit her website at pamelahoward.co.uk. Again, that's pamelahoward.co.uk. UK. I'd personally like to thank Ms. Howard for allowing me the opportunity to bring this lecture to you. Uh, I reached out to her um, the other day, and uh, she said that it was great, that it was okay. Um, so I'm glad I took the opportunity while I was at the uh, Oystead 50 event to be able to uh, capture this for you, to bring to you. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoy. Have a great day. Um, welcome to the last of these um, Touch on the Times. <clears throat> and since I'm the unelected grandmother of this event, <laughs> it's fallen upon me to actually talk about a Touch on the Times. You can see it, and you have a card. <clears throat> I'm just going to remind you of some facts before I begin, to put this into context. On June 28, 1948, in Prague, Czechoslovakia, UNESCO established the International Theatre Institute, which was known as ITI. The general director of UNESCO was based in Paris and was Dr. Julian Huxley. He was the general director, um, but he was known as a scientist, a geneticist, and a world citizen. Eight countries joined ITI with the aim of rebuilding cultural bridges that had been broken as a result of the ravages of the Second World War. Those eight countries were United Kingdom, 
Czechoslovakia, France, Austria, Belgium, Poland, and Switzerland. And they were the start. I don't know if people know this. In the ITI network today, there are over 75 countries involved. The structure of the ITI was a series of commissions in the lingua franca of, of the day, I see it still is, comprising amongst others critics, publications, history and the theory, and scenography, which from the outset was considered to be an important discipline within IGI. As is the way of scenographers, it grew and grew and grew until in 1968 it devolved itself from ITI and became an organisation in its own right. And in 1985 it incorporated architecture into its structure, becoming Oystat as we know. Um, I'm just reminding you of the facts. I know probably you know that, but I'm just saying it again. It has been, however, a privilege in my life to have been what I might call a minor participant since the early 70s. And I was coerced into it by the late John Berry, who you can see there, a forceful neighbour who, who saw I could be potentially useful. He needed young, innocent girls. <laughs> a touch on the times is simply going to record seven people I have known well in my life. There are many, many more. And it's just a few examples of the importance in those times of Oystat and friendships that were made. I now remember fondly and the unwritten Seno Manifesto that John Berry explained in Centaurian tones. Um, tones. And if you look on, the, on your card, you'll see these, this, uh, what John called the Seno Manifesto is written on the steps. It's like Al Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? <laughs> and this is what he said. Oystat should hear the views of the artists. Oystat scenographers should invent new ideas. Oystat should be the means for exchange of artistic ideas. Oystat should maintain supportive international friendships. John's colleague, the designer Timothy O'Brien, wrote of John in his published obituary as a groundbreaker, usually in the grip of a great enthusiasm, um, and he ploughed through what were called the lawns of English theatre, the well-manicured lawns. John came in as the brutalist, and he reorganised or challenged traditional theatre tastes and, received, um, and all the received opinions of how sets should be. Now, John was initially a worker, actually a worker on the ground of the theatre workshop. That was Joan Littlewood's workshop in the East End of London, who produced Oh, What a Lovely War. And he swept the stage. There's his brush. You, can't, you can see it on your card. 
He swept, um, he swept the stage and fixed the lights and drove a van and he did anything that Joe Littlewood needed with a hammer and real objects. And there's the hammer in his hand. Okay. And he designed, I've just taken one example of work that he did, and it was a musical called Things Ain't What They Used To Be. I think that's rather good for us today. Things Ain't What Things Ain't. And, um, and the set, that, or the setting, looked like the building site of the renovation of the historic theatre. When I came across this photo, I actually first thought it was the rebuilding of the theatre, but it wasn't. This is the setting for things ain't what they used to be. And I just must say that people hadn't seen concrete mixers on the stage before. Um, uh, yeah, isn't it wonderful? I love that photo. Um, for, and then over the years, John, of course, his profile very much increased and he was in, to be found moving through Covent Garden, Opera, Blindbourne and Broadway and he became an international figure. He was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. He and his colleagues started the Society of British Theatre Designers that continues to be our professional organisation to this day and he organized prize-winning exhibits for the Prague Quadrennale that was from the start an integral part of Oystadt. He became chairman of the Scenographic Commission of Oystadt and eventually, of course, president. And he, he had a bear-like enthusiasm, always dressed in old, comfortable clothes and sandals. He had an undisputed authority. He had a talent for leading, for leading committees, we're coming to this, and getting exactly what he wanted. And he had a great sense of history and context. And he was a compulsive observer of human life in the many countries he traveled to, especially in former Soviet-occupied countries. And above all, he did not hesitate to offer help whenever that help was needed. And many of us, including me, were his foot soldiers, knowingly, or in my case, unknowingly. You did not say no to John Berry. In 1977, John Berry <laughs> led a delegation to Riga in Latvia to join in a march to mark World Theatre Day which coincided with a Neustadt meeting. When we arrived, we discovered that we had no national flag to march behind. However, John had come with a large amount of new plastic bags printed with National Theatre of Great Britain, where he had just recently been installed as the resident designer. And John commanded the group to go in the main square and pick up branches from the floor, from the trees, from the street, and push them through the carrier bags, thus making flags. And we all marched behind plastic bags that said National Theatre of Great Britain. Um, and we obeyed and we processed. And we walked 
through the square to the famous Dallas Theater in the central um, square in Riga. And we were warmly uh, welcomed by Ilias Bloombergs, um, who was the chief artist and designer at that theater. And he had uh, the theater's motto on the wall, and it said, I'll never forget, in two languages, clarity, <clears throat> simplicity, and passion. We were all moved and impressed as we felt the artistic solidarity between us. Now, we saw several wonderful productions designed by him. And although we couldn't really comprehend anything that was spoken, what we learned was that the powerful visual metaphor of scenography spoke louder than words. As was so often in those difficult times, the scenographic images told the story behind the text. I got to know Elias Plumbergs and told him that as, as a small child, my father had come from Riga as a refugee to England. And I told him where I thought the family home had been. And in a spare moment, he put me in a terrible old bashed up Brabant motor <laughs> and drove at the most alarming speed through, um, through Riga. It was very frightening. While motoring through these roads and without stopping, he asked me to take one of his lithographs to England and to show it to as many people as possible. He warned me that I might get interrogated at the customs leaving Latvia, and I was simply to say of question that I was an art student and I liked the picture. It was in a cardboard roll, and he asked me to open it. All this is while he's driving the Brabant at a fantastic speed. As I unrolled it in the car, he explained to me it was predicting the fall of the Soviet Union, which he was sure would come before long. At the end of that frantic car ride, he wrote a message on it for me. He had stopped the car. I got through, I got through customs without being stopped by the severe-looking military female customs officer, and when I got home, I knew I had carried precious cargo. I'm going to explain to you what he told me. So the red bloated figure was his idea of the Soviet Union falling into the water. The head is already drowning. I'm quoting his words. The sharp green um, um, pieces of grass were going to pierce the balloon-like body of the Soviet Union, and it was going to collapse. I had it framed the next day, and those of you that have been to my house will know it's never been off my wall. I, and I was proud to have been able to carry that and his wish long before the event actually happened. Um, sorry, yeah. The main thing was, John never knew I had it. 
And that was the triumph. <laughs> in 1978, while I was working in Lyon, in France, at the Théâtre National Populaire, Roger Planchon, who was then the director, was sent, uh, sent me to the Taganka Theatre in Moscow to sign a petition supporting the director, Yuri Lewinov, who had run into difficulties with his production of Tchaikovsky's Queen of Spades. And I met up with other Oystad supporters, and we saw an amazing production of Hamlet. And there I met the sonographer, David Borofsky, whose work I'd only known from books. <coughs> I'm going to show the um, Hamlet. This pretty, well, okay, you'll see it in a minute, the next. Are we there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you going to show the Hamlet? Yeah, sorry. If I could have seen that Hamlet, I'd like that. Okay. No matter. Okay. So um, this is the um, poster that was signed by Lubimov and, um, and Borowski that I brought home. It's in my studio. Many people have seen it in my studio. This is me many, many years ago. <laughs> Okay. The production of Hamlet was designed entirely with one heavily textured curtain, and this curtain just hung on a metal bar, and it could go back or it could go forward. It was suspended like on a track above the stage, and it formed different spaces. And quite honestly, we'd never seen anything like it before. It was absolutely a revelation, the flexibility. The curtain both hid and revealed, and as in many of Borowski's works, referenced the life and times that he was living in. It was miraculous, it was simple, it was bold, it was absolutely beautiful, and entirely at one with the heightened acting and direction. And if anyone can find this on YouTube, it is on there. You can, you can actually look at it. And after the performance, we met Borowski, as was the custom, and he showed us some of his preliminary drawings for the productions. We saw his sketchbooks with sweeping, elegant brushstrokes. So meet the artist, this is what it was all about. Bringing his instinctive thoughts to paper, and Lubimov gave me that poster and another one of Master Margarita, the play by Bulgakov. Okay. Um, we've somehow missed a, a picture, but never mind. At this time, when um, PQ was part of Oystadt, the, the quadrennial was the great meeting place. And I'm just reminding people, no? Borowski had received the gold medal in 1971 and in 1975 the Grand Prix. He was invited to make works in many countries and productions came to European opera houses and the renowned and must, much missed wonderful world theatre season that we used to have in London. And we met up occasionally and we talked of Odessa, a great cultural centre where I had been, and the importance 
of the continual practice of drawing, aiming to achieve a fluency and simplicity of line that could express volume and form in one brushstroke. Little did I ever think that in 2018 I would discover the rarely seen marina drawings that are now on exhibition in the Bakrushin Museum, Central State Museum in Moscow. And I'm going to show you, this is just, reminds me of me looking in those sketchbooks all those years ago. There, there, it's a series, a much bigger series of drawings called the Marina Drawings, that was his wife. And um, I think the simplicity of line and the evocation of volume through a line, like you might see in Matisse, you know, is very, very beautiful. Um, so I, I'm just thanking his, um, Alexander Borowski because he's allowed me to show these drawings here. And I don't think most people in this audience have, will, will know about these. Um, now, <clears throat> through Oystadt, Bloomberg, from Latvia and Borowski knew each other and they discovered mutual roots and mutual artistic interests. And if you look at your card, you'll see that everybody is touching everybody else. So everybody connected eventually. And into this came the much admired Czech painter and sonographer Jaroslav Malina, who I first met through John Berry in those very dark years of the early 1980s. And there he is, my dear friend, whose funeral I sadly attended. In, in 1967, when he was much younger, Malina published his motto, which was actually a published work, and he said this, I have always been waiting for the moment when all my friends and acquaintances of long ago, all those I was fond of, quietly enter my room and calmly take their seats. The door will open in no time, but I do not turn my head, continuing my happy observation of the birds fluttering on high up in the sky and erasing with the circular movements of their wings the borderline between that which was, which is, and which hopefully will come. And that is his drawing of the bird. This philosophy, a metaphor of life and art, never changed and is reflected in his paintings and scenographic creations that were left to him, that were to him, both his left hand and his right hand. In, and you'll see in here this is um, a very favourite work of his, and it's Mother Courage and her children. It was a play he was very, very devoted to. And I think this combines colour, space and texture, and is an extremely beautiful picture. 1987, 
during the period when I was a guest teacher at Dhamu, which is the Academy of Performing Arts in Prague, Malina and I walked across the Charles Bridge and we talked about a dream of creating an international sonography course for mature students or practitioners who wanted to take a year out of their normal life to achieve their dream. Thus the germ of the European Sonography Centres that finally opened in 1994 was born and was very much related to Oystadt events. And it was here that the first Senofest, um, that the first, whoops, let me find this, that the first Senefest took place in 1994. And Manila was very central to that celebration. And I know there are people here who were part of that course and knew him, and what a privilege that was. Just for the background, though, some people may not know. Malina had studied at the pedagogical faculty at the Charles University from 1957 to 61, and then at the Academy of Fine Arts, where he graduated in 1964. In 1990, he became a teacher at the Academy, and he was its rector from 1996 to 1998. He was a member of the Artistic Council of the Academy of Fine Arts in Prague, and in 1991, 1999, and 2003, he sat as the Commissioner-in-Chief of the Prague Quadrennale. <coughs> he was um, a fantastic man, and when I was at his funeral two years ago, I think it was, um, it was wonderful because he died just as he was preparing an exhibition of his work and he was painting in his garden at an, at an easel and he had a heart attack and died in the garden while painting. I, don't, I couldn't think of a better epitaph for him. In 1997, the Korean Centre <coughs> of Oystad hosted one of the most, one of the most, um, thank you. <laughs> in 1997, the Korean Centre of Oystad hosted one of the most memorable meetings I ever attended. The theme of the symposium was nature and sonography. And I re-met the amazing Madame Lee Byung-bok whose astounding version of Hamlet I had seen many years before in Paris. And it was in Paris <clears throat> that Fritz uh, spectators saw a production where the scenic elements were made from totally natural materials. We'd never seen that ever before. And there was um, a big curtain, again, but it was made of hemp cloth and organic paper and she was already experimenting with creating costumes out of leaves from mulberry trees, which of course without the worms I suppose, so that they made uh, silk. This, is, this was the, one of the elements in her Hamlet. 
Lee Byung-bok was chairman of the Korean Theatre Artists Association that joined up with Oystad. She was a fluent French speaker, which is how we communicated. She was very, very tall and very imposing. And to be in her presence was an inspiration. Some of you will know this, but some will not. With her husband, her late husband, who was one of Korea's leading contemporary artists, they had rebuilt an old palace in the Korean mountains, mm. moving it stone by stone, because they bought it and they didn't like the location it was in. <laughs> and they recreated the traditional courtyard around a central lake, and it was known, it is known, it's still there, and it's known as the Norwegian Museum. At this symposium, we were taken from Seoul through the countryside to the museum and seated by the lake, and we witnessed a female shaman, shaman and her family's performance on the wooden stage floating on the lake. I'd just love to know, is there anybody here, who, apart from me, who was there? Oh great. So do you remember do you remember that the this yeah. woman, the shaman, came on in the lake and she had a great big fishing net and we all had to put money in it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, she counted the money and she said there wasn't enough to go on with the performance. <laughs> and then she came back and we had to put some more money in it. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, we had wonderful smells coming up from the hillside and in the hillside they had put barbecues and we had this amazing barbecue and here are some of the paper costumes and uh, there you can see behind some of the people who were at that Oystad meeting there's another photograph yeah, and so there we were. And it, it was it was truly amazing because it was it was magic, but actually she was wearing sneakers under her traditional dress. <laughs> so it was two worlds coming together. Um, but it was it was very uh, amazing. And I did keep in touch with her over many years. She was actually the ultimate interdisciplinary theatre maker, well before we ever used that name. She ran theatre companies, she performed in many countries, and she put Korean art on the world map. She and Malina shared a meditative philosophy, and they both loved birds. She called her practice Ensemble Creativity, and she introduced the use of Korean mulberry paper made with her own hands as costumes, masks, sets and props. And through these simple creations, she used just very, very careful, small accents of colour. She expressed her feelings of life and death in a lifelong search for a form that could be understood by people all over the world. And she said this, listen carefully folks. Lee Byung-bok said, costumes are not merely something the actors wear, nor are props 
merely the object actors use. These things have to be beautiful, and they are performers in the play. I think that's just wonderful. Um, we last met in Seoul in 2016, when I was invited by the Arts Council of Korea to make a Shakespeare workshop. On my last evening, at a dinner in a, Bo a Buddhist restaurant was arranged. In, I just explained that, if you don't know, in these restaurants, you sit with your legs in a pit, and then there's a table at kind of knee level. I just want you to know I just had two hip replacements. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, so I was sitting with my legs in the pit, and um, Lee Byung-bok, Madame Lee Byung-bok was the host, but she was not there. Our dinner began with the monks bringing us the food and bathing and everything. And um, suddenly, a large car drove up, and she imperiously arrived, carrying a large, beautifully wrapped parcel in a bag. This is what it was wrapped in. Okay. Levez-vous, she said to me. I could hardly get up. I mean, my feet were in a pit. I was wearing a skirt, and she said, uh, say it in English, take off your skirt. And I did. And she said, here is your artist's uniform. You will always wear this to be creative. <laughs> it is a reproduction of um, a traditional Korean fisherman's um, outfit. It has pockets, it has pockets at the back, and every day when I go to work, I wear it. <laughs> Wasn't too funny taking my skirt off. <laughs> and um, in, in this bag was a loving handwritten letter, which I treasure to this day, and um, testifying to our long friendship and it was made on handmade paper. <coughs> now, I, I treasure that because it is absolutely fundamentally what a young person or younger person being in Oystad meets an older person, learns from them and establishes a lifelong friendship. So, I want to go back to tell you that she gave me this gift and I realised that a very important part of this is how a gift is wrapped, how carefully a parcel is put together, or how carefully a production is parceled up within what you want, what you want to try and say. So, 
You know, wrapping carefully is a great art, and it, it really symbolizes the careful preparation that we make before any performance. Now, I have no knowledge, actually, that Lee Byung-bok ever met the great Algerian multidisciplinary artist, Abdel Kader Farah, and I'm sure they would have had much in common. Both French speakers, both imbued in French culture, their practice rose way above decor and was full of metaphor and meaning, carefully wrapped in its cultural context. And I'm very pleased to welcome Abdul's daughter, Lily, who's sitting at the back there. And, um, well, no, in the middle there. Uh, <laughs> Lily, just stand up and make yourself known. It's a very great honor to have you here. <laughs> In this, um, in, in, in this brief talk, uh, do find Lily and she'll be able to tell you about the book of, of, that she's making about her father. Um, so, but what, what I really think is what is important is that Oystad also offered, and I've heard this talked about here, artists that were considered as outsiders a way to become insiders. And when John Berry led the, um, can we go on, can we go to our book please? The establishment, thank you, of this, when he led uh, the establishment of the Society of British Theatre Designers, Abdul did come into the fold always with a wise and perceptive observation. From 1994 to 2000, he came to the European Sonography Centre's MA course as a visiting lecture, lecturer, and those sessions were absolutely unforgettable. Did he talk about the projects the students were involved in? No, <laughs> only tangentially, because he had a belief, and his belief was that the understanding, understanding the basic construction of shells and spirals was fundamental to the mythology of theatre art, and that had to be mastered first. And he used to say, uh, it's all a balance, and he had this little balance with him in his back, and he used to hold it up and say, you know, you had to, I mean, we were used to people coming in and talking about how does somebody come in a door and how did they get out? And here is a man who's coming in and talking about balance and, and I'll show you how to draw spirals and shells and then you'll be able to do everything. Now, Abdul had the distinction of becoming the resident associate designer from 1961 to 1991 at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-on-Avon. And to this day, that is a totally unique achievement. And I, I hope it will be justly recognized. He was in exile from his homeland, Algeria. And he worked, after having worked in Strasbourg as head of the National Theatre School, he also became an exile from France. I saw him 
in a different way. I, I saw him rather like Gulliver, with a foot in the east and a foot in the west. And he brought an extraordinary sensibility to every single detail of his theatre creations. And here, I, I'm very excited to have this because I have actually never seen this before. Thank you, Lily. And um, here you can see his drawings, his working out, his thinking, this is a mask for Helen Mirren, in Richard, who, who, who played uh, in Richard uh, III. And um, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that, to have this because I think this is a revelation to see. Can you go on? Okay. This is his drawing for Seven Deadly Sins. And one more. Thank you. And this is Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex that Stravinsky himself <coughs> saw and approved of. Can you imagine? Isn't that amazing? And um, this was a production of Oedipus Rex that um, was at uh, Sackler's Wells. Well, I haven't got time to do more, but Lily yes, is yes, here. Yes, yes, do. Pardon? Go on. Go on. Oh, yes, I have. I'm all right. But I'm <laughs> hey, we're only halfway through. Um, okay. In 19, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this bit now, <laughs> because in 1975, John Berry and a core group of British designers who, would, um, who were part of the Society of British Theatre Designers, um, <laughs> we, um, Abdul never wanted to be part of an organisation. We always tried to get him in, but he wouldn't. But anyway, we, we discovered one of the things that John did was to organise, uh, to help countries, and Poland was one such, to organise meetings in their country. And if, a, uh, at that time, people didn't actually hold their own passports. And um, if you organised a meeting, it was possible for those people to come out into England or France or wherever the meeting was. And that was one of the things that um, uh, John started to, um, to do. Now, um, I just forgot to tell you one thing about Abdul, so excuse me. But when he died, uh, the director, Terry Hans, wrote in The Guardian obituary, Abdul himself was in personality as rich and mysterious as his work. He was everything that we were not in England, exotic and Arab. He called up images from a civilization that we knew, but he felt. And the most profound thing is that the designer John Napier remarked, he was the wisest of us all. Now, I just go back now to, uh, to Poland, because John then uh, uh, introduced us to the Polish people that we, that we know. And uh, I first met the great puppeteer, Adam Kilian, 
at one of these Ostat meetings. I went to a festival of new plays in a place called Sopot that was, were doing plays by um, Rojek. And I found myself sitting next to a very genial man who spoke excellent English. I didn't know who he was, I had no idea. And he said to me, Madam, do you know what the Polish national sport is? And I thought, well, what, football? And he, and I said, no. And he said, reading between the lines. <laughs> we were watching the play of Vaslavomir and Mrozek. Kilian said to me afterwards, he said, you know, I see the world through wooden eyes. And he invited me to his studio. We became very good friends and I went there many times. Kilian had studied architecture, as a matter of fact, in Nottingham in England at the former College of Arts and Crafts following his war service in World War II in Iraq when his Polish regiment was stationed in Nottingham. Colour, folk art, puppets and dreams were a family heritage of Kilian. And the breadth of Kilian's use of these forms in all genres is actually unique. And in 1958, he drew me as the fiery angel for the production of Zvritala, which was seen in Paris at the Théâtre des Nations and awarded the Grand Prix of the Critics Club. Anyone who's been to my studio would know that this big poster is above my bed there. This production was seen in many countries and it became, honestly, an ambassador for its art. And it references, there it is, this is me and this is him. Um, <laughs> um, it references the glass paintings from Poland through the deep blue luminous background that became his signature. He's a small figure at the bottom of the painting and he's playing a mandolin, which he did play. And the performances were often quoted as a daring experiment full of wit and sardonic humour. And it, it established puppetry as a major art form. Now, when he said to me, I see the world through wooden eyes, I didn't know what he meant. But what he did mean was this, he discovered that puppets under the Soviet regime could say what humans could not say. And he took the, he took the two characters of the devil and Saint Francis, representing good and evil. This is the devil, and that's Saint Francis. And he constructed stories, metaphorical stories, that nobody could possibly say on the stage. And it was absolutely brilliant. Um, his work is well known and easily accessible. Um, but I want to talk about something else in relationship to him, and as we consider Oystat at 50. So I mentioned this just before. Oystat was very, very important to this artist. 
it wasn't easy for people to leave Poland, and when Oystat meetings were held in Poland, which they were often, it was possible for them to come. But when Kilian came to meetings in England, he was waiting for all the speakers to finish, and I had to be very near in my old Morris Minor, because what he wanted was to go to the supermarket and we queued up and we bought Polish pickled cucumbers, Polish sausages, we bought toilet rolls, we bought Ajax cleaning things and we had big bags and he went back to Poland with all this stuff and that was a very good reason for having a meeting. <laughs> he used folk, so I, I said that he used folk tales, he used puppetry as a metaphor for the universal problems of life. And he found that in these dark times, puppets could say, as I said, what humans couldn't. But he found, you know, uh, he was a very devout uh, Catholic, and he found that the lives of the saints were the perfect stories, the perfect dramaturgical vehicle um, to, to make these stories from. And <coughs> what I loved about him so much was that he combined sophistication with a simple and naive way of looking at the world and understanding children. And actually everyone appreciated his artistic um, excellence and you knew what the ambiguities were. And I called him an engineer of the imagination. And one of the things that he did which I'm very happy to be able to show you in reality, is that he proposed um, a project to UNICEF and to design a tablecloth. What he wanted, but he didn't achieve it, was everybody in Oyster to design a tablecloth. Because sitting round a table and sharing food, as we know, is an essential part of any um, meeting. This is the tablecloth that Adam Kilian designed. This is his drawings. This is not children's drawings, this is his drawings. This is the tablecloth, whoops, can you see? <laughs> that he designed for UNICEF. And it was a project, it never really got off the ground, but you can see that the children are repeated on four, on four sides. I couldn't believe I really found this because I have used this tablecloth in my own house. But what a wonderful idea to get Oystad artists, not only to talk amongst ourselves, but to actually be visible in the world by designing a tablecloth. How simple and how bold. I want you to look at it, so I'm going to put it on the floor. Just, just pull the end. Yeah. It's a bit faded because I've washed it a lot. <laughs> but I love it. Here it is. I started 50. There we go. So... I want to quote you now 
a direct quote from Kilian's work, his own words. He said this, to me, art is a game. My life's purpose is to save the land of childhood through the sets, puppets, costumes, and illustrations <coughs> I design. I've succeeded in taking a small nip of that unfathomed store of naive freshness, of art and charm of the primitive, and in total freedom. What he meant by that is that by using these methods, by using the devil, by using St. Francis, by using puppel, uh, puppets, he had achieved a freedom of expression that he absolutely could not have done in any other circumstances. And I'm, think, I'm always thinking to myself, there are many, many ways that artists can get around and find their way round the corner. We were talking yesterday about La Fura del Bas, about being rats in the sewer. I think we have to be a lot underground. So um, this is really um, just a, a brief touch on the times. I was frightened of doing too much. I could have talked about many other people, so, but it's just some examples of personalities that were very formative. <clears throat> and um, can we go back to the big picture, please, Brad? Oh, no, wait a minute. Hold on, don't. No, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, so it's a personal memoir of a few people who in their different ways connected with each other. And I hope shows visually how important it was in those post-war years and the subsequent dark times, because art and Oystadt were the great connectors. We saw each other's work in actuality, and we understood its context. We met, discussed, and dreamt, not all perfectly, all without conflict and argument, but Oystadt created the footprint for true international cooperation. Yaroslav Malina led the argument to allow individuals as well as countries to become members and thus to get to know artists in countries where there could not be national centres. For me, I really think that was the most important achievement. And it's funny because um, I was, as I was writing this, I was looking out of my studio window and I saw this display of red-hot pokers, blown by the wind, but remaining upright. And I was very struck by the symbolism of this image as we reflect now <clears throat> on Oystadt at 50. Overall, a united organisation composed of extraordinary individuals, each going their own way while connecting with each other and held together by a very thin piece of wire. <laughs> Long may it last. Thank you.
Michael. <laughs>